Now, by way of reminder as to what we are doing, we are doing a month-long series called Praying House to House. It's a series that I hope will turn our homes into beacons of prayer dotted throughout the city. In other words, I'm trying to get you praying. Because we just studied the first five Psalms, and we see how important prayer is for the Christian life. And so we launched out of that into a series that I'm hoping will get us praying. So right now, I'm going to come around. I want you to tell the flock, the congregation, how much you prayed this week. Okay? I'm just kidding. I'm not going to do that, obviously. I wouldn't even tell you how much I prayed this week. How, how should I go about trying to turn our church into a praying church? Should I do it through scare tactics like that? You're going to have to tell us how much you prayed. Should I do it through preaching? Impassioned sermons about prayer, how to pray, what to say. We already did that. What we came away with, and what I took from our study through the Psalms is, I don't think that's how we become a praying people. I don't think we will become a praying people by trying really hard to pray. I think we'll become a praying people the same way David became a praying man in the Psalms. He meditated about God and Scripture and the things above. And from that deep thought life, thinking about God, thinking Godwardly, prayer erupted naturally. So this is going to be a strange series about prayer because we're really not even going to talk about prayer. We're going to talk about God. Each Sunday we're going to meditate on God from a different angle. And it's my prayer that God would use that meditation to bring about passionate, real, genuine prayer in our lives through the rest of the week. And House to House will help with this because it will help you to continue to meditate on the scriptures through the week. So that's what we're doing. We're thinking about God and we're hoping that God's going to turn that into real, passionate, genuine lives of worship and prayer. Okay, are you with me? So, my premise today is groundbreaking. Many of you may have never heard this. My premise today is God is God. You may be dismissed. Thank you for coming. God is God. Now, how many of you knew that? I actually do want a show of hands. How many of you knew that God is actually God? Okay, we're all aware of that. We are all designed, all humans, not just Christians, every human is designed as a worshiper. We are designed to worship a God and serve a Lord. And what I'm going to argue today is that that God and that Lord whom we're designed to worship and serve is the God of the Bible. And we're going to see how all through the Bible, one of God's primary messages is I'm God. That's one of the primary things we see him saying to his people over and over and over again. You would think that he would just say it once right up front. Hi, I'm God. And then he wouldn't have to keep saying it. But all through the Bible, he keeps telling his people, remember, I'm God. Remember, I am the Lord. And so we're going to remember that this morning. And what we're going to need to do is figure out all the little G gods that we're worshiping and serving. We're going to need to identify those, and we're going to need to bring them down. 
So I'm hoping this morning will kickstart that process, and this week God will continue it in our lives. Now, we will be studying a passage in Deuteronomy, but I have a lot of context to give you before we get to that passage. So what I'd like you to do is to take your Bibles and turn to the table of contents. I want you to see all the books of the Bible laid out before you in the table of contents. In order to understand this passage in Deuteronomy in terms of God's constant message that He is God, we need to start at the beginning. So if you look in your table of contents, I know some of you are more familiar with the Bible than others. Genesis is the beginning of it all. It's the beginning of the Bible. It's the beginning of the Pentateuch, which is is a certain section of the Bible, the first five books. Genesis is where we read that in the beginning, God created everything. So in the beginning, just picture in your mind, just blackness, nothing. The only thing in existence, God. And God speaks into that blackness and creates the heavens and the earth and light and the universe and plants. And, and each day of creation, it gets better and better and better until he creates man. And that's the big, that's the climax of creation. Well, actually not quite. The climax of creation is woman. He creates man and he says, ah, that's really not very good. It's not good for man to be alone. I'll create a counterpart, a helper suitable for him. And so he creates woman. And so man is like the crown of creation and woman is like the crown jewel of creation. That is the climax, man and woman. And they're so special because they're made in the image of God. Nothing else was made in the image of God, but man was. So man, Adam, and Eve is perfect. They're in the Garden of Eden. They can do whatever they want. They can eat from any tree except for one. And then in comes the serpent, Satan. Now, keeping in mind our premise for today, that God is God. Do you remember what Satan whispers in Eve's ear to get her to, do, to commit the first sin? Well, he says a lot of things. He says, did God really say you can't eat from any tree? And he says, no, we can eat from any tree but that one. And you remember what the serpent says next? He says, oh, he only told you that because he knows if you eat from that tree, you'll be like God. And so the temptation isn't, all oh, that fruit looks yummy. It's, I could be like God. And so you know what happens. She takes the bite. She gives it to Adam. The first sin, it messes up everything. They're kicked out of the garden. And they're screwed up. And every person who's ever been born since is screwed up. And one of the fundamental flaws is that we too want to be like God's, ourselves. So from the start, there was a struggle for us to see God as God. And not ourselves as God. So man multiplies and fills the, the earth. The sinfulness just grows and grows and grows. Until God says, I'm done with it. I'm wiping them out. Floods the earth. Except for Noah and his family. Everybody remembers the charming story of Noah and the ark. And everybody forgets the horrific story of every other person on the earth drowning. We remember the pleasant children's story version of it. God judged the whole earth because we were a bunch of idolaters. We were all worshiping ourselves as God. So Noah survives with his family, and they multiply. But as they multiply, sin multiplies as well. 
In fact, at some point, they decide to come together and they decide we're going to build a huge tower. We're all going to come together and work together on this. And this tower is going to basically be a monument to our awesomeness. Worshiping themselves. So God confuses their language. That's the Tower of Babel story. I'm not losing you yet. I just want to work you toward where we're going to be in Derudimum. Have you ever read Derudimum? It's an excellent book of the Bible. Deuteronomy. So it confuses them at Babel so that they won't continue to try to be like God's. But people continue to multiply. The sin continues to multiply. So God looks down and he picks out one man, Abraham. Well, his name was Abram. Then he changed it to Abraham. But he said, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. From you, I will make a nation. And through this nation, I will bless all the peoples of the earth. And I'll give you your own special promised land. You will be my people and I will be your God. This is what God's been trying to work out for for all of creation. To have his people and he be their God. So Abraham says, okay. And takes off. He doesn't know where he's going. Father Abraham. He had many sons. All together now. Father Abraham did have many sons. He had Isaac. They were really old. They weren't supposed to have kids. But in confirmation of this promise God made, they had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob and Esau. Jacob had 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel, great participation, thank you. Israel, God's people in the Old Testament that God set aside special so that they would be God's people and he would be their God. Okay? Now remember the 12 sons, the youngest one, Joseph, thought he was pretty good. He had the dad's uh, really colorful coat. Always told his brother about his dreams that he was having, about how they would all bow down to him. They got tired of it. Sold him into slavery in Egypt. But God showed Joseph favor and he rose up to be like the prime minister of Egypt. And it was great. And in his position of power, he was able to bring in his whole family to Egypt to survive the, the uh, famine. This is a whole Old Testament history. You guys didn't know you were going to get this this morning, did you? So his whole family, which equals Israel, God's people, is in Egypt. But eventually a new ruler comes to power who doesn't know Joseph, doesn't care about him or his family. He just sees that Israel is growing and he perceives it to be a threat to Egypt. So they enslave Egypt for 400 years until Moses comes along. Okay, we're getting there. We're getting real close. Stick with me. Moses comes along. Now we're in the book of Exodus. If you're still in your table of contents, we just, you just learned all about Genesis. We're in Exodus now. Moses comes along. God says, Moses... Through you, I'm going to take my people out of Egypt and put them in the promised land. You will be my people. I will be your God. So do you remember how he does that? The ten plagues. Each of the ten plagues was a punch to the face to one of the Egyptians' gods. Again, God is saying, remember, I'm God. You Egyptians have all your, your frog god and your sun god. I'm God. Each ten plague was a powerful reminder. I think mainly for Israel to remember, I'm God. I'm bringing you you out of slavery. I'm bringing you into the promised land. So you will be my people. I will be your God. Brings them out. They're in the wilderness. 
brings Moses up onto a mountain, gives him the Ten Commandments. Who remembers the very first of the Ten Commandments? You'll have no other gods before me. I'm going to give you these Ten Commandments to guide how you will live in the promised land. And the very first thing, do not forget this. Don't have other gods before me. I am God. But before Moses can even get up, with he's trying to get up and carry these two tablets. Before he can even get up, God says, you need to get down the mountain. Your people are worshiping a golden calf. They have already have another God before me. Remember his brother Aaron formed the golden calf and because Moses was gone for so long. We are inherently prone to create little gods for ourselves. Anytime God seems to be taking too long, anytime God doesn't seem to be tangible, we are very quick to make little gods for ourselves. And that's what Israel did. So Moses comes down and he's furious and he breaks the stone tablets and he takes the golden calf and he... He obliterates it and puts it in the water, makes people drink it to try to make them remember that this is not a God. This is a a wad of gold. God is God. But because of this, they have to wander the wilderness for 40 years so that that whole generation will just die. He doesn't want any of those fools entering the promised land. They do. Okay? Now, looking in your table of contents, Leviticus and Numbers... That is all God preparing these people. It's their time in the wilderness and God preparing these people for when they can enter the promised land. There's a lot of laws, a lot of rules. He's trying to show them how to live so that they will be his people and he can be their God in the promised land. That brings us to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, those of you who are still sticking with me through this history lesson. Deuteronomy is Moses's. Moses, however you say that possessively, I'm going to go with Moses's farewell sermon. He knows he's going to die and he is not going to be able to enter the promised land. The whole book of Deuteronomy, the majority of the book of Deuteronomy, is Moses, his last big sermon to to God's people. They're leaving the wilderness. They're about to step into the book of Joshua. I hope you remember something about the book of Joshua when they enter the promised land. Don't make me go into all that history this morning. I'll do it. It's his last big address. Can you guess what the main theme of his last address to God's people is? Don't do like they did when I was up on the mountain talking to God. Don't make other gods. Remember, God is God. God is God. Don't forget It's all through Deuteronomy up to the chapter we're going to be studying. And there's verses like, I picked out a few to read to you. Deuteronomy 4.35. He says to Israel, God's people, To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord, He is God. There is no other besides Him. And then just a few verses later in verse 39, He says to His people, Know therefore today and take it to your heart. That the Lord, He is God. In heaven above and on earth below, there is no other God. God is God. And then in verse 5, He repeats the Ten Commandments to them. Can you remember what the very first of those is? Don't have any other gods before the God. Chapter 6, He talks to families. He says, moms, dads, raise your kids to remember that God is God. 
Chapter 7, Moses explains to them that when they go into the promised land, they're going to have to brutally destroy the Canaanites. If you were here when we studied Joshua, they brutally destroyed the Canaanites. They killed men, women, children, elderly. They wiped them out completely. He explains why in chapter 7. Can you guess why? Because God knew if they allowed even just the kids to remain, that they would be tempted to follow the Canaanites' gods. He didn't even want to leave the possibility of his people worshiping other gods. He wanted them to remember that God is God. He explains that in chapter 7. And again, in in chapter 7, verse 9, he says, Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments. God is God, don't forget And in chapter 10, he redoes the tablets with the Ten Commandments. Can you remember what the first one is? Don't have any other gods before me. And that's where we are here, finally. Everybody wake back up. We're here. We're done with the history lesson. We're we're in to our passage for the day. Now, if you would, stand with me to honor the reading of God's Word. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, beginning at verse 12. Deuteronomy 10, beginning of verse 12. Moses speaking to God's people. Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Yet on your fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them. And he chose their descendants after them, even you, above all peoples, as it is this day. So circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. So show your love for the alien, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God and you shall serve him and cling to him. And you shall swear by his name. He is your praise. And he is your God. Who has done these great and awesome things for you. Which you. Which your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt. Seventy persons in all. And now the Lord your God. Has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. We're so grateful to have God's word. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. The primary verse we're going to look at this morning is verse 17. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. Our God, the God we're designed to worship and serve, is the God of gods and the Lord of lords. 
Now, everybody raised your hand when I said, who knew that God is God? I was like, well, I know that. I know God's God. Duh. I'm in church. I'm wearing a tie. Clearly, I know that God is God. Those of you who aren't wearing a tie, I assume you do too. Do you really? Because I'm sure at any point, if you asked an Israelite, you know God is God, right? They'd be like, yeah, I'm an Israelite. Do you really, do you know God is God? He's the God of gods and the Lord of lords. We're designed to worship and serve him alone. Now I have some questions for you to help you think through this. I have some questions for us to help us root out and see, do we have idols in our lives that need to be identified and taken down? Because if we don't worship the God we're designed to, it's going to result in damage and damnation. We're designed, like a hammer is designed to drive nails, we're designed to worship God. And living by anything else is like trying to paint a wall with a hammer. It's going to result in an ugly, damaged life. And you're going to miss salvation. So it's important is what I'm getting at. It's important. So let me ask you some questions. What is your number one priority? When you wake up in the morning, what's the first thing? I know coffee. But I mean, when you really think, when you wake up, what's first? What's the most important thing to you? What is your number one priority? That thing is probably your God. What's your number one passion? What gets you excited? How many of you have ever been to a NASCAR race? Good bit of people in here. How many of you have ever been to a service of worship to the God of the universe? We're in one now. Okay. Are they basically the same in terms of excitement and passion? They're pretty much all on par with each other. Now, I know there's some codes of conduct in church that <laughs> rein us in a little bit from what you might see in a NASCAR race. But think about it for yourself. What excites you, really? What are you really passionate about? Whatever that is, is probably your God. What are you most devoted to? Think of your time in a given day, a given week. Where are you investing most of those hours? Now, I know you have to work. But is that work where I'm assuming most of you spend the majority of your time? Is that work an expression of worship to the God of the universe? Or is that work an expression of worship to the God of financial security or the God of your reputation or I don't know what? What are you most devoted to? Is it your families? Is that what takes up the majority of your thought? Family's a good thing. But is your devotion to your family an expression of worship to the God of the universe? Or is your devotion to your family an expression of worship to your family? See, even good things can be idols. Like Mark Driscoll says, and I quote a lot, 
Idols often are good things that become God things, and that's a bad thing. What do you trust the most, the deepest? Where do you find the most real, tangible security? Is it in your God? Or is it in your retirement plan or your bank account or just your plan in general or your family? What do you really, when it comes down to it, really, where is your trust? Whatever that is, is probably your God. What do you value the most? Think about just your what you value, your stuff, your life. The Bible says that one day everything's going to get burned away and we will stand naked before God. Now, in that process, when you look over and you see the bonfire that is your stuff, your life, your cell phone's in there, your laptop is in there, relationships as you know it are in there. What is it that you just cannot live without that's in there? Yeah, God's here, but oh no. My PlayStation, whatever, I don't know what it is. Whatever that is that you really believe, you cannot live without that. Even if you have God, that's all well and good. That's probably your God. I'll tell you a story I've told you before. I only have like five, so I rotate it. I was teaching a class one time, and I asked them, describe for me what you think heaven will be like. And they had a lot of thoughts. I think heaven will be peaceful. There'll be no fighting or trouble. There'll be no more pain. I think we'll have a mansion and streets of gold. And they went on and on. It was beautiful. People will be joyful. People will be happy. I'll see grandma again. All great things. Most of which I think are true. But you know who was missing? Yeah, God was nowhere in their vision for heaven. Whatever you think your heaven's going to be stocked with, if it's not God, that is your God. Because biblically, heaven primarily is going to be God. All the time, right there, God. I do think you'll have, you know, I don't think we're going to be wearing diapers, strumming harps. I think we're going to be, you know, existing in, in some way, and, and there will be, it says streets of gold, you know, I can't pretend to know exactly what they mean by that, but they mean something real, and it's going to be amazing. I'm not trying to take away from any of that, but it's going to be amazing because of God. Heaven is not going to be a magical place where you get all your idols finally. Oh, I'm in heaven. I have my idols now. Heaven is going to be the place for those who gave up their idols long ago and finally get their God. What idols are coming to mind that need to be destroyed in your life as we go through this? Because it's very subtle. It's very subtle. Nobody would say, I'm an idolater. Everybody would say, yeah, I know God's God. Yeah, I serve God. But it is so subtle. I want to give you a couple of examples. They may seem corny, but it helps me to think about it. 
So the first example I'm going to give you, these are completely made up people. I try to think of names of people. I don't even know anybody with these names. But if one of you has this name, I'm not talking about you, I promise. Take um, Reputable Ralph. (laughs) Reputable Ralph. I don't think I know anybody named Ralph anymore. Reputable Ralph is a good guy. He works hard. He goes to church. He's involved at church. He is plugged in at church. He wears a suit to church. He parks far away from the church so that elderly people can park closer. He's a nice guy. Nicest guy you would ever want to meet. Has a good family. He doesn't drink. No one has ever heard him utter a curse word. Nicest guy you could ever meet. Now, does reputable Ralph worship God? At this point, maybe. We know he goes to church. We know he's moral. But, if you could look deeper and get to know reputable Ralph... You would know that when he's in church and he has his hymn book and there's all these words on the screen about how great God is. He's just, he sings. He even kind of knows like facial expressions that would be appropriate. But in his heart, he cannot muster any real passion for this God that everybody's singing about. He goes to Sunday school and he has a Bible, and he brings it. But in his home through the week, he cannot muster any desire to open it up or to hear from God. Reputable Ralph doesn't worship God. Reputable Ralph worships his own reputation. He lives so that other people Will not think badly of him. So he does all the religious stuff and all the moral stuff. But he doesn't really care about God. Heaven for reputable Ralph is, is stocked with all kinds of things, but not God. He cares about God, but he's reputable. I told you that a life of idolatry will lead to damage and damnation. The damage and reputable life, <laughs> reputable life. Reputable Ralph's life is that he is totally isolated from everybody else. Nobody really knows him. And he's afraid of everybody else because he doesn't want them to know what really goes on. He doesn't want them to know that he really doesn't care that much about God, that he really isn't interested in reading the Bible, that he really only suffers through the entire sermon before he goes to lunch because he knows it would be socially unacceptable for him to get up right now at five till and just walk out. But if he did what he wanted, that's what he'd do. So he's isolated and he's afraid. Nobody really knows him. It's an inward life. It's an exhausting life. It's a life that you burn out on. I wonder how many of you in here are like reputable Ralph. Man, if that's you, Jesus would come to you and he would say 
just lay all that down. I know what's in your heart. I know you don't really care about God and you don't really care to read God's word, but I love you anyway. Let me come in and just take you in my arms and just change you. Stop the act. What is it going to get you but damnation in the end? Come to me. It doesn't have to be like that. The yoke you're carrying is heavy and burdensome. Come to me. Worship God. That's what you're designed to do. Stop worshiping your reputation. Some of your idols are going to keep you from ever coming to Christ. Because you're going to think, man, I've been in church for 50 years. What are people going to think about me if I come to Christ now? Can't do it. Man, I pray that God would just destroy that idol from your life right now. That you would come to Jesus, that you would get rest, that you would be transformed from the inside. Another one. Family Frank. Family Frank's another great guy. He works hard. Works really hard. He works hard to put food on the table. He works hard so his family's provided for. He's a family man. He wants his kids to do well. He wants them to thrive. He wants them to, to figure out what they want to do with their lives and to do it. And for it to go well, he wants his wife to thrive and do well. Takes him to church. Family Frank's another one of these guys. It'd be a great guy to know. But there's a problem. Family Frank's wife and kids are not perfect. In fact, they're sinners like everybody else. Living with them is hard. Family Frank's wife is imperfect. She doesn't do everything he feels like she should do. She doesn't look everything like he feels like she should look like. Family Frank's kids are difficult. They don't obey all the time like he thinks they should. And so the pleasure that he's receiving from his family just gets a little less each year. And it grows a little more difficult for him to be there, to love them. Till eventually he can't anymore. He goes out. Now was family Frank's devotion to his family an expression of worship to God? Or was he worshiping his family, expecting to get purpose and pleasure and satisfaction out of them? This is tricky. Family is great. Family might be the greatest thing on earth besides God. But when you turn a blessing into an idol, you ruin everything. When you try to extract enough pleasure and purpose and life out of a, out of a family member or a person, you will pretty much destroy them or any relationship you have with them. God means for us to love each other as an expression of worship to God. He does not mean for us to love each other in a desire to extract what we want from them. Family Frank has an idol and it's his own family. And he can't see that it's destroying him and them. And he's missing out on worshiping God. One more quick test from the text. I'll leave it at those two examples now. And we'll wrap up 
But if you look back at verse 12, what does this God expect from us? This might help us again to identify the idols in our lives. Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God, walk in all his ways, and love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul? What do you fear the most? That's probably your God. What do you obey the most diligently? That's probably your God. What do you love the most? That's probably your God. Whom or what do you serve with the most vigor, the most time? That's probably your God. And if we live for any other God than the God, it will result in damage and damnation. Because God is God. The one we were designed to worship and serve. And now real quickly before we wrap up. This is not some cruel demand that God makes on us. Who are you to say I need to make you my God? It's not some cruel demand. He's showing us the way to life and liberty. And peace and joy. It's what we're designed for because he is God. It's not Egotism for him to say, I'm God, worship me. It would be egotism for me to say, I'm awesome. Why don't you guys all worship me? That would be ridiculous because I'm not God. But God is God. So it would be idolatrous for him to want you to worship anything but him. I know that's hard to wrap our minds around. I needed to say it. Think about this this week. Let this give rise to prayer this week. Maybe your prayers just need to be, God, I know I'm not worshiping you. Help me to see what I am worshiping. It might just be, God, I know you're God. And I know I need to repent. Help me to see of what and help me to do it. I don't know. I don't know how this will give rise to prayer in your life, but I'm hoping that it will. And right now, I would like to pray for you. And during the last song, if you would like to come up here and be prayed with, please do. I would love to pray with you. Let's bow together in prayer as we prepare to sing our closing song. Father, we confess together that you are God. You are the God of gods and the Lord of lords. There is no one or nothing like you that we should devote our lives to. There are idols in our hearts. Please reveal those to us and destroy them so that we can be your people and you can be our God and we can live according to our purpose. Through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.